Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Entrepreneurship is something that was ingrained in Jared Grimm's psyche from an early age. In fact, if you ask Jared, he'll tell you that his younger self believed that starting a company was the only way to make money. A native of suburban Edmonton, Jared's first job was a local flyer route. But unlike most kids who are stuck spending hours bundling flyers before lugging them out for delivery, young Jared outsourced part of the labor to his sisters, essentially turning his first job into his first ever managerial role. After high school, Jared enrolled at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, where he studied marketing. After graduation, he landed a job selling advertising space on bike racks throughout Edmonton. With little structure, it was the type of role that required an entrepreneurial mindset for success. From there, he moved over to Patterson Outdoor, one of the largest outdoor advertising companies in Canada. Jared had a plan to take a year off to backpack Europe, but there was one problem. A senior role at Newad had presented itself just as he was getting ready to leave. He convinced Newad to hang on to the job and returned a year later into a VP position. It was during this time at Newad where he was handed a massive branded content opportunity. Both the client and the dollars were big, but the process of getting the campaign live proved to be costly and cumbersome. Jared saw these hurdles as a business opportunity. Clients wanted to spend more on branded content, and the ability to scale and report efficiently across multiple platforms was difficult. And just like that, the idea for Pressboard was born. We sit down with Jared Grimm, Pressboard CEO and co-founder. Want to learn more about the company? Then open up your podcast app and search for The Science of Storytelling. It's the official Pressboard podcast, and it brings together the best minds in the digital publishing space to talk about how stories can change the way we think and feel. Pressboard builds tools, specifically tech tools for content creators. And to elaborate on that, when I say content creators, I mean everyone from NBC Universal and USA Today and Globe and Mail to a local mommy blogger. Basically anyone that's building an audience uh, and is likely earning their money by working with advertisers. So we build tech tools for those types of people and organizations. And then my role there, so I'm co-founder and CEO, myself and TM Corky started the company in 2014. Uh, and we're a small team. So we've kept the team usually between about 10 to 15 people uh, fairly intentionally. I, I've worked at larger organizations and I always thought it'd be amazing to have a company that could be 10 to 15 people, but act like a company that's 100 to 150 people. And so that's where I wrote the stage we're at right now. I want to go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Beaumont, Alberta, which is one, it's a small, I think it was 2000 people when I moved there, just south of Edmonton. And it's a French town. So it's a French town really? in the middle of rural Alberta, like French enough where the signs, the stop signs have both English and French on the stop sign. Everything is named French. Uh, but it's like this little weird little thing. And there's a few of these little towns. I think a lot of people moved from Quebec over to Alberta. And I don't even know when this all happened. And they settled into these little French towns. So Beaumont, Alberta, just south of Edmonton, maybe 15 minutes south of Edmonton is where I'm from originally. Uh, I live in Vancouver, specifically North Vancouver now. Uh, tell us a little bit about life growing up in, in Beaumont. Because you were, you were in Alberta or outside Edmonton at a very, I guess, exciting time for the city. Well, it was in the 80s. So if you know anything about Alberta in the 80s, it was so good in the 80s that Edmonton named itself the City of Champions. And that's because <laughs> if you remember the 80s, so if you're a hockey fan or a, a CFL fan, the Oilers won five cups in a decade in the, in the 1980s. The Eskimos won, I think, every Grey Cup that there was to win during that time. And it was also... Just a fun, the 80s were just a fun time, I think, to be a kid. I, I just look back and I think, of, I mean, everyone, every generation probably looks back and thinks about how simple it was back at that time. But it was an incredible time. I think oil was doing really well the, at that time. Uh, so it's just a great time to be a kid in a small town in Alberta, right near Edmonton. So did you spend most of your time there? Did you guys move around? 
I grew up there. I mean, I was there from the time I was a little kid. I, I was born in Edmonton, just in the south part of Edmonton, but we moved to Beaumont when I was maybe four years old. And then I lived in Beaumont or on an acreage outside of Beaumont right up until I was 18. So I grew up, what was really, I look back and I, I'm grateful for is that I grew up with a great group of friends uh, and they knew me from when I was really young and we we grew up together, played sports together. So I, I still have this really core set of friends that I grew up with. And now that I have kids, I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, both boys, I just see they don't have the same, they have something different, which is they meet new groups of friends every year or two and some of them stay and some of them leave, but it's a little bit more transient of relationships so they probably have more friends or more people uh, but it's a little bit lighter of a connection and so I just found growing up with in that place for that period of time was just a incredible way to build a foundation looking back at it now let's talk about your interests your hobbies growing up Let, let's start off first with the fact that you were a part of uh, I mean Edmonton was the city of champions back then you had to have been playing hockey correct me if I'm wrong you had to. There wasn't even I didn't even know that there was a choice. I thought you're a kid, <laughs> you play hockey. We had girls hockey before girls hockey was cool. We had ringette when it first came out. Like everybody, regardless of, you know, gender, race, anything, you you played hockey if you were in Edmonton. I mean, it had we had Wayne Gretzky at the time. And you could say that hockey was at its peak in Edmonton in the eighties. And it was talked about all the time. It was it consumed what you know everyone was talking about on the news and in in social situations. So it was a really big part of the fabric. So I grew up playing hockey. I loved it. I still play hockey to this day, which is also kind of interesting living in Vancouver because it's not like that in Vancouver. Soccer is much more popular. There's a broader range of sports in Vancouver. Hockey isn't. I wouldn't even say it's one of the top three that's considered by by most of the people here. So that was a big interest. And it started to consume other parts of my life too. I collected hockey cards when I was nine or 10 years old at the peak of like the upper deck when upper deck was coming out with them. Oh, I remember upper deck. Yep. I had a subscription to, do you ever have a subscription to Beckett? It was the, no, it was, so there was this magazine and all it was for was the price, current prices of hockey cards. Called Beckett oh, magazine. yes. No, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the black book for used cars, but it's for hockey for cards. Hockey so I had a monthly subscription. I think 99% of my allowance that I had went to hockey cards or Beckett magazine to see what my hockey cards were worth. It, it was amazing. So that was one of my hobbies. And then I did, I always was interested in, in making money. I, even from a kid, I was looking for ways to do chores to make money or, you know, start little businesses or do a lemonade stand. Uh, so I'd say between hockey, hockey cards, riding my bike and trying to figure out how to make enough money to buy more hockey cards, that that was my entire life. I got one question for you. You mentioned that you were in Edmonton for all five of those Stanley Cups. The fifth one was without Wayne Gretzky. When he was traded, was that a dark day for you? Okay, so I remember it perfectly. Because we used to do this summer trip to Asoyas in BC, we have my family. We'd go in, we had a motorhome, we'd drive down there, and then we'd park in Asoyas and uh, do like water skiing and stuff. And I remember the newspaper came, because this was in August of, what was it now, 98? Uh, or sorry, uh, 88. I can't remember. I think, I think it was eight, it was 88 or 89, because I remember yeah. that was the big deal that the Edmonton Oilers weren't going to do it again. And then like a year later, they did. They did. Without but when, a Gretzky got traded. So the newspaper came and I think it said 99 tears. I can still picture the cover of it. That's and a great my, headline. My dad uh, cried. And I, my dad never cried. I had never seen him cry in my life. And he was so upset that it's like I remember that moment so vividly because I had never seen my dad so upset because it was core to him too, right? He was he considered himself like an extended part, as every Edmontonian did, of Wayne Gretzky's family and the Edmonton Oilers. So it was a tragic event. And then when they did, they won the cup. But they still, if you think about it, that team at the time had, you know, Mark Messier and Yari Curry. And like they had Grant uh, Fuhr. Yeah, Grant Fuhr. They had Ramford. They had the Ramford ended up being the goalie that year. And he was incredible. And they had just had so much depth at that time. And it was great for them to win that cup because then they could say it wasn't just Gretzky. 
Uh, but they haven't done great since then. Well, this year they were doing good. And then, I mean, it's probably the thing that the, finally the Oilers are, are maybe coming back to their potential. And then they get a shortened season with, uh, with we'll, what we'll see, I guess, if there's going to be playoffs or not. But yeah, well, hockey did, did consume a lot of my life up until I would say I was maybe 18 years old. You cite both of your parents as being your influences. A lot of people on my podcast uh, looked up to their parents and they were big influences on their lives. But you you can literally split it down 50-50 to who you are. Tell us what you inherited or you learned from your father versus what you learned from your mother. My parents were very different people in what they taught me about life. So my dad owned a business. He owned a construction business. And he's like a math whiz. He's the kind of guy that, you know, you throw a few numbers at him and he figures it out on the fly. He's doing long division in his head. Uh, and he had an accounting background. So he was really great with numbers, really good with business, really good with economic related stuff and, and had an incredible work ethic. So I, I learned from him not to be scared, First of all, I mean, the reason that I started a business is probably because I don't have a fear of starting a business. And that comes from my upbringing with my dad. And he really built out that left brain for me. And then my mom was the opposite. So my mom was doing yoga in the early 80s when no one, it was weird, right? Like it wasn't cool. There's no Lululemon. There was no yoga, no, there wasn't. yoga studios. It was just my mom in the living room doing yoga and people being like, what is she doing? And including me and my sisters. And then she, uh, she would take psychology courses for fun, just to, just to learn. She taught herself how to write left-handed because she just thought, well, that'd be interesting if I could write with both hands. And she just spent a month or two learning how to write with her left hand. And so she's very artistic. She was into homeopathic medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. It was for her whole life. She passed away a couple of years ago, uh, but she built out the right side of my brain. So I think if I would have only been influenced by one or the other, I would either be, you know, pure capitalist or pure hippie. Uh, but <laughs> I, I hope that I was able to, you know, be somewhat of a capitalist hippie in some way. So you kind of netted out as a moderate, you'd say? I hope so. I hope that I netted <laughs> out. I'm still, I mean, I moved to Vancouver, so I'm probably a left-leaning liberal in general, but my dad is is less conservative than than most business owners in Alberta, I would say. So he uh, maybe I'm a left of center because they both were both were headed towards that side. What was your first job ever? So, like I said, I wanted to do make money in any way I could. And when I was uh, maybe I can't remember exact age, but let's say nine or ten years old, the only job you could get was delivering flyers. So you couldn't even get a paper route until you were a certain age, but you could deliver flyers at a younger age. So I got this flyer route for my neighborhood, which is you'd get these stacks of, you know, London drugs or whatever it was in Edmonton uh, at the time. And you get uh, something for an electronics store and then you'd get something else for another store and you'd take all these stacks and then you'd collate them together, which is take one from each package so that you'd have these bundles for each house. And then you go and drop them off and you usually you'd have a route maybe a couple hundred houses that you drop them off at twice a week. So I did that. And I remember how much money I made. I made between 23 and $30 a month delivering flyers twice a week. Like this was that flyer company had to be doing well. They're paying some nine year olds $25 a month to go twice a week and drop it off at, at 200 houses. So that was my first job. And I loved it. I mean, how much money do you need as a nine year old? $25 a month buys you all your cocky cards that you ever needed. You're so rich that was that. My first job. Oh, you're, I was loaded. I was the, like, compared to my friends, I had an allowance for doing chores and I had a semi uh, or part-time job. So I was raking it in. What brought you to the Northern Alberta Institute of Tech and why did you choose to study marketing? Yeah, so my, I guess part of it, my dad went to Nate. I'm sure that that had some influence over it when I was choosing what schools to go to. But was he wearing uh, Nate t-shirts all the time? No, he what wasn't. I, no, he wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like one of those schools. I don't think Canada quite has that, you know, Cornell University. I'm going to wear this hoodie for the rest of my life type of feel to it. I, I don't even see it really with like UBC or Guelph or anything that much. So it wasn't from that. But what I did know was I always knew I wanted to be in marketing. I fell in love with 
the idea of advertising when I was a kid. Maybe it was from delivering these flyers and seeing ads all the time. But there was this moment where I was I used to watch this show called Who's the Boss? I don't know if you remember. Oh, very. uh, Ted Danson, uh, Alyssa Milano and geez, uh, Judith Light. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, Judith Light, Tony Danza. just to, to correct you on the Ted Danza, but Alyssa oh, God. Milano. Oh, yeah. Danza, that's right. And, yes. uh, and I love that show. But what I really loved about it was Judith Light had this job. So she played this character, Angela Bauer, and she had this job where she would, uh, she was the head of an ad agency. She owned her own ad agency, actually. And she would come home from work because Tony Danza was her housekeeper, looking after the kids, taking care of it. It was this interesting, like, 80s role reversal at that time. It was very progressive for the time. Very progressive. And so you had Angela Bauer. She was the head of this agency that she had started. And she'd come home with these, like, huge storyboards. You can just picture, like, this big uh, black cardboard. And it would have these magazine covers on it or a storyboard for a commercial she was working on. She was always going to these, like, super fancy dinners she wore these suits with these like it was the 80s so she had the the big shoulder pads on them i don't know if i wanted the suit but i really wanted that job i thought it was it just seemed like such an interesting merge of very creative but very business which again leads back to this idea of my dad and my mom's influence i was really attracted to these creative capitalist jobs uh so i fell in love with that decided i was going to be in marketing I was maybe maybe 10 or 12 years old, and I never changed my mind. I still haven't changed my mind since that time. So what I loved about Nate uh, was this idea that I could just be a marketer right away. Like, I didn't have to take a bunch of courses that were unrelated. I could take, I think it's a two-year course, so I could take two years of intensive marketing uh, study And then the thing also is that a lot of advertising agencies and advertising companies, they really like to recruit from these schools. So I found that a lot of the people at the companies that I wanted to work at, the people that owned or ran these other businesses that were in the marketing space, they had all gone to Nate. So I thought, well, this is a slam dunk. I'm going to be in and out of there two years and I'll be able to get a job. And it seems like that's what this industry really likes. So, so I loved it. I, I, really enjoyed going to Nate. I enjoyed the co- course load. They did a ton of projects and I ended up getting a job straight out of actually before I had even finished uh, my two years at Nate. That first job that you got out of Nate, was that the one where you were selling bike rack ads? Yeah. yeah. Oh, so tell, we, tell us about that because that's very yeah. grassroots. You can't start lower than selling bike rack ads <laughs> if you're going to get into media. There's nothing, there's nothing smaller like both physically and probably client-wise the bike rack ads. So what happened was I was at Nate and our final project was for this bookstore called Greenwood's Books. And uh, this campaign that we ran, it had to be a real world campaign that you built. So you had to get quotes from real vendors. You had to build creative. Uh, If you could get it placed, you could use budget towards getting it placed actually out in the world. And so one of the things that we did was there was a lot of foot traffic that was on an area called White Ave, which is the kind of the party area, um, but also kind of the artsy district of Edmonton. And there's these bike rack ads. And we thought, well, let's get all this foot traffic to go to the bookstore. So we worked with this guy that owned these bike racks. And the guy that owned the bike racks, it was like a part-time thing. He had just acquired these bike racks from somebody else a few years ago. But he had a real job separate from this where he, I think he sold garbage trucks to cities, which sounds crazy, but he would do, it would take like the sales cycle on selling garbage trucks to a city could be five or 10 years, but you, they're multi, multi-million dollar deals. And he only had to do a deal maybe once every like couple of years because the commission that came off of that was so big, but the sales cycle was long. So on the side, he would work on these bike racks. So he hired this kid out of Nate, which was me, uh, because while we were doing this project, he said, do you, do you think you'd want to sell this? I said, well, sure, I'll I'll give it a try. So towards the last month of Nate, uh, he hired me to do it and I had to do everything. So there was no office. I would go to his house. Uh, He had no, there was no sales materials. There was no, there was no company. So I just drove around in my car, tried to talk to bars and restaurants. And then I did the full, the value of this at the time was I wasn't like an intern inside of a department inside of a large company. I 
sold the bike rack ads. I did inventory on them. So I had to map it all out and which places were in which, which bike racks were in which place had which ad. Uh, I had to work with a creative designer that we outsourced to design the ads, get them printed. I installed them. Uh, I did like all, everything. You were the company. I was the whole company and it was all out of my car. I just used my car was my office. So I remember thinking, I, I enjoyed it, but I remember thinking like, there's got to be more to advertising than driving around in my car and putting stickers up on bike racks. Uh, but it did get me my next job. So uh, where I really wanted to work was Patterson. Patterson owns billboards, right? And I really wanted to work there at a school. I just had always loved billboard advertising. I really liked the story of Jimmy Patterson. And that's where I wanted to work. And I applied there while I was at Nate and I didn't get the job. But then I did this bike rack thing for a month. And then when I went in for my interview, I knew about, you know, production. I knew about creative process. I knew about cold calling, inventory. So I had this crash course in what was essentially outdoor advertising and was able to get a job right away. I ended up getting a job selling bus benches. So my progression was from bikes to bus bench ads, which at the time was, you may as well have promoted me from coordinator to owner of a company in how big that felt for me at the time, that progression. Uh, but it did end up getting me that job at Patterson. Let me ask you though, about that second interview you did at Patterson. Did you find that you had a little bit more confidence because you had that experience from the bike rack company? Like, was that interview a lot more comfortable for you? Was it a lot easier? Yeah. I mean, the difference was you move from theoretical knowledge to real world knowledge. And when you're in school, what I found was, I'm like, I know how this all works, textbook wise. Like, I know what these marketing terms mean. I know what I'm supposed to do. But you go into that meet, that first interview, and that first interview, they're asking you real world questions. They're asking you, how do you properly respond when a customer objects in this way? And they're not making stuff up. This really happens when you're selling advertising to a customer. And that first interview, I really didn't know. I had no experience doing it. I had never run into an objection. I didn't know how you overcame it. The second interview, I was able to answer the questions by saying, here's what happened one time, and here's how I resolved that. And now as a person that hires people, there's a fundamental difference between those two answers in here's what I think versus here's what I know based on experience. And so you do, it's, it's not even a difference of confidence. It's just in a different way that you answer the question. Uh, and I think that made a big difference because I actually interviewed with the same person twice. And the first time they would, didn't even really consider me. I'm sure I looked like every other student that was out there. And then the second time I came in, it looked like I had experience in their field. Did they remember you the second time around or no? Bare barely. This was the hard part. I thought they were, I was going to walk in. They'd be like, hey, welcome back. Like how they do on uh, like one of the singing shows where like, we remember you from last year. Uh, but it wasn't that. I was looking for that recognition in their eyes. So I obviously didn't make a great impact. But I think I was one of maybe a few dozen students that went in and interviewed that first time. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't think I made a big impact the first time, which is probably why I didn't get the job. So you left Patterson for New Ad. What brought you there? So New Ad's primary business is ads in bars, restaurants, campuses. They have them in the washrooms and outside of the washrooms. If you've ever been to a, any of those places, you know New Ad. I mean, there's no other way to put it for guys listening to this. It's the urinal ad. It's, it, it's one of the few ads that holds our attention for 10 seconds. Yeah. And so what I always loved about advertising was I've always followed things that worked for me. So I'm a, I'm a marketer's dream. I'll drink Coors Light at watching a hockey game. I'll switch to Bud Light to watch a football game based on the sponsorship because I feel like that's a part of the experience. So I'm, I'm built for marketers. When they do a persona, they're doing a persona. It's Jared Grimm. They're like, if we sponsor this, I think we can get this person to drink Bud Light. And then I will. So I was always a huge fan of marketing that spoke to me. So when I was in school, I had to drive from Beaumont because I was still living in Beaumont when I went to Nate and Nate was at the North side of Edmonton. So I had a, about a 45 minute commute and I would pass a ton of billboards. So I thought, Billboards are amazing. They must work for everybody. Wanted to work for, for Patterson. Then when I was going to school, I went to nightclubs a lot. I went to bars a lot. I went to the gym a fair bit. And I was in a school, which was another place. And so all I saw was new ad. All I saw was these ads all the time. And I thought, 
like this is it. This is the marketing that's working for me. And so I applied to New Ad. This is another. I think maybe I suck at first time interviews because I applied to New Ad and I didn't even get an interview the first time. I was at Patterson. I thought I'd really like to work for this place. It seems like they're after young people. It this was pre-social media, so a lot of uh advertising mediums were starting not to work for people that were in their 18 to 34 group, but new ad was working really well for that. And I fell in that demographic. So I applied and I didn't even get an interview, but then I was fortunate because a little while later, uh, I was, let's say maybe a year later, I'd started getting involved in the industry associations. So in Edmonton, it's called the advertising club of Edmonton or ACE. And I was, I joined the board. And so they did these industry events and I was at an industry event. And by then I had, I don't, I wouldn't say that I had a great, like I hadn't built up this amazing reputation, but what I had done was I ran like a student committee for the ACE board. I was starting to get, I was at every event possible. Um, and the owner of new ad, Brian Wyatt approached me at one of these events and he said, Hey, what would it, what would it take for you to come and work at new ad? Which I was like, I said, like, why don't you look through your resumes from a year ago? <laughs> It's sitting there. You just need to call me when I keep sending you resumes. Anyway, Brian, he, he's almost made an offer on the spot that uh, that I could come work on new. And I said, yeah, for sure. Now, at that time, I had already planned that I was going to go backpacking. So I was going to leave Patterson. I was going to go backpacking and come back to no job. The interesting thing that happened, I signed a huge deal at Patterson and I got a really big commission check. And so I had a choice. I could either stay at Patterson, continue growing my career. I could take this commission check and go to Europe. And I decided this is the only time I'm going to have, you know, this much disposable money at one time, the will or the want and the lack of responsibility to be able to go. So I decided I was going to go. And then I ran into Brian probably within a week or two of making that decision. So I told him, I said, I'll work at New Ad. I don't know why I had this bravado in this moment, but I said, I think because he didn't know I was leaving Patterson. I said, I'll work at New Ed, but you have to save the job for me until June of next year. And I'll sign on right now, but I'm going to leave for a year and go to Europe and then I'll come back and then I'll work for you. And, uh, and he went with it because they were just getting started in Edmonton. He didn't need a sales rep that moment. I think he was interested in hiring someone that had experience and out of home that was on these boards already. That was like a young go-getter that could come in fairly cheap too. Uh, so I had a job waiting for me when I came back from Europe. It was incredible. It was such uh, very fortunate that that happened. How old were you when you uh, left town to go backpack Europe? Yeah, so I graduated, I guess I was 24, but 24. How many, how long were you gone for and how many countries did you see? Yeah, I left for a year. So I had always planned. So it full was 12 months. Full 12 months. Uh, so I had saved, I'll be really specific here because it was, I guess it was in like 2004. I had saved up $20,000, which $20,000 for a 24 year old is a million dollars. It was the same as like flyer money, right? It was, uh, one thing I've learned about money is that it, it only means a lot to you at a certain period of time. $25 when you're nine is a million dollars. $20,000 when you're 24 is a million dollars. And it never lasts. Like $20,000 for me now, uh, I'll still have to put it towards mortgage, right? Because yep. you have all this debt. You've got so um, yeah, you have commitments. So I thought $20,000, I'll be able to go for a year and not have to work if I don't want to. Because uh, I did want to go and really enjoy it. I didn't want to go backpacking and have to work at some like temp job just so that I could stay there. I wanted to go and enjoy it. So I went and I lived like a king and I ran out of money about seven months in. So <laughs> I had enough for 12 months, but I just, I lived like a kid. Like I had a private room in the hostel if I wanted to. Uh, yeah, I was just living it up. So about seven months in, I had to make a choice of either coming back home or else getting a job. And I ended up, uh, getting a job in a bar for a little while in London. And then I got a job at a ski resort for three or four months during the winter ski season. So in all that first seven months, I think I probably saw, I don't know, maybe 15 countries or however many countries there are in Western and Eastern Europe, because I went pretty much to all of them. And then for the last few months, I stayed in England, a little bit of time in Germany, and then most of the time in the South of France at the at Trois Valley, which is the three valleys. And finally, my French upbringing came into came into play. 
because I took French immersion because everyone in Beaumont, because it's a French <laughs> town, you can take French immersion. And for the first time, I actually used my French immersion when I worked in this French ski resort. So which country or town or city, I should say, had the biggest impact on you? For sure, Turkey. So I almost didn't go to Turkey. It was a bit off the beaten path at that time. There was, there's always been a bit of unrest. Yes, um, I've been Turkey. to Istanbul and I, I, yeah, I totally concur with you. It is one of those places where you kind of have to time it properly. Yeah, it's not Italy, right? It's, uh, it's not as easy to travel as UK or, or it's not thought of as easy, as easy to travel. It's different. It's different than Western and, and Eastern Europe. So uh, I had this friend that I was traveling with from Australia and he was the one that said, he's like, let's go to Turkey. And he was, he had been traveling for two or three years because a lot of these Aussies will tra travel for two years then they'll go home for a bit, then they'll travel for another two years. So he, he was very comfortable going anywhere. And uh, so we went to Turkey, loved Istanbul, and then went to Cappadocia, which is like, if you ever see these images of this almost like desert, but it's got all those, uh, what are they called? Inflatable balloons or the hot yeah. air balloons? Yeah, hot air balloons. Yep. I know and which one you're talking like about. Really cool landscape. So that's, that's Cappadocia. I went on a sailboat for a week, this like almost pirate ship looking sailboat where we lived for a week. It was very affordable was another thing about it. So I think you have a lot of fun when places are affordable as a backpacker because you don't have to, you can have as much beer as you want. <laughs> really, you only need a place to sleep and you need beer. That's what you're looking for as a backpacker. So as long as those two things are affordable, you'll have a great time. Uh, but what I found really cool too is I went to a soccer game or football game there. And I had never been to a sporting event like that. I thought hockey was this, you know, passionate sport, uh, but it's nothing compared oh, which, to what Which Turkish is. team was that? Was it uh, Fenerbahce, Galatasaray, Vestikas? It was, it was in, um, oh, now what's the capital? Ankara? What's the yes. Capital? Okay, so it was in Ankara and it was two teams. It was an inner country game. So two teams from within the country. And I can't remember which teams they were, but I do remember that, Ankara was one of the teams, and then it was a, a visiting city that was coming there. And the visiting fans, there was only a couple hundred of them, and they had to stay in one section of the stadium. Inside, uh, it was, had chain-link fence around all the sides, a riot squad around it, and a roof on it to protect those fans from the rest of the stadium. I'd never seen anything like it. So you go to a hockey game or a North American sporting event, and you'll have fans from both teams, intermixed, wearing jerseys, cheering, yelling. Here, the away fans were only allowed in this little section and they were completely caged in. And then everybody else was cheering for the home team. I obviously was cheering for the home team, but I was told before it says, here's the colors you're wearing when you go there. Here's where you're going to sit. You're going to get in and you're going to get out. Uh, only because the passion is so strong that things can go. If you don't know what you're doing and you don't understand the tone that's happening within the, the building, uh, you can get yourself in a little bit of trouble as some random Canadian backpacker. Uh, but so that country just had so many things going on. And I was there for, I was planning to go for three or four days and I stayed for a month. It was the longest I stayed in a country that I didn't work in uh, while I was there. And it was incredible. I recommend it to everyone. It's if you go to one place in Europe, I'd go to Turkey. What did you learn about yourself backpacking? How to be bored. So it sounds weird, but when you go somewhere for a year and if I if I were to tell someone, you know, about my trip, I could tell talk about it for an hour, but I'd probably recap all these like amazing moments that happened, just like I did about Turkey. But when you're there for a year, there are days and sometimes even weeks where nothing's really happening, where you don't really have that much money. So you're gonna spend all day sitting in a park, reading a book for three or four days. You're gonna eat some bread. Uh, you're not going to really run into anybody that you know, and you're going to be really bored. And for the I found it really hard for the first month. I found that I had to keep busy. I was so used to socializing and all that. And then I'd say by the third or fourth month, I started really getting comfortable with the idea of not doing anything. And I still look back at that as a skill. So, I mean, where it's come into effect a lot is we have this quarantine going on and boredom sets in relatively quickly because you're, yes, used to, you're used to filling every moment. But I, I've really become comfortable with this idea of like being bored could be a good thing. Uh, and it's come in really handy. So you can have positive experiences 
being bored is often seen as a negative, but I think what it did is it, it changed my mind about it and made it like an acceptable part of, of life and possibly an enjoyable part of it. I, I would say that's what I learned that I don't think I could have had in any other experience other than not having anything to do and nobody to talk to sometimes for a week on end. I wanted to ask you something very specific, though, uh, about your time in Europe. So you started off as a sales rep, and within that role, you were going into businesses and introducing yourself, trying to make friends on the spot. I backpacked Europe, but I did it after school before I had a sales job. So I kind of had to muster up the courage to go out there and meet people if I wanted to make the most of the day or the evening or meet people who otherwise were traveling on their own and make friends. It was just kind of something that you had to do. Did you find that because of your sales experience, it was a lot easier for you to make friends when you were backpacking on your own? Well, I'll ask you a question. Do you consider yourself, if you had to put yourself in a box, introverted or extroverted? When you get to know me, I'm an extrovert, but otherwise I'm very comfortable being an introvert. And yeah. I kind of, I, here's something crazy. I kind of describe something that, uh, I sometimes suffer for uh, suffer from as social fatigue because as sales reps, we're always on the go. We're always talking to people. We're always booking meetings, going through the presentation that if it comes to a Friday night where there's nothing to do, I'm quite happy just being alone with my wife, my dog and my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think you've always been that way or is it like as you get older, are you becoming more that way? University really uh, helped me help knock me out of my shell. I'd yeah. say that. Yeah, I was more of so, an introvert in high school. I'd say you're probably like me. I'm starting to learn that I'm I might be more introverted than I think. Uh, one reason I know this is comparison. So my sister, my the, I have two sisters, the older of the two is highly extroverted, and the difference between me and her is we're both very social. Uh, we'll both you know like to lead a room, right? Like if you had me and Cassie, one of my sisters, there, we're fighting for attention the whole time. Like look at me, look at me. Uh, the difference is, is around like 11 o'clock, I need to get out of that. I'm exhausted. And she's just getting started. She doesn't want anyone to go to sleep. She wants to keep the party going because she's building energy while she's there. And I'm losing energy. So I, I'll start off like super high energy, life of the party right at the beginning. And I tail off pretty quickly. And I want to do something like watch a movie. Like if the group could just watch a movie around 11 o'clock, I'd be cool with that. And I, I found the same thing traveling was when I would get to a place, I would be able to uh, bring that energy at the beginning. But once I was there for a while, I really liked to fall into the shadows uh, because one of the things is, is with sales, you tend to lead the conversation or you're, you're the one starting the interaction. Exactly. Uh, and the same thing backpacking, I find that I would start the conversation, but I'd be because there was like me and maybe three or four people, like my sister type of people, like these extroverts, we'd all end up getting into the same group when I'd go to this hostel and they would just keep on going and I would get drained. So I'd start off with that group. And then within two or three days, I was with the crew that was like reading a book over in the corner and just trying to like re-energize myself. So it's just this interesting thing that I learned about myself. I always considered myself an extrovert. I think I'm a very social uh, introverted person for the most part. But sales, what it does is it helps, it helped the introvert in me get beyond that and force myself into conversations that I naturally probably wouldn't have done otherwise. So your 12 months are up, you come back and you land at Newad, job you've been trying to get for the past, I guess we could say two years now because you'd already spent a year abroad. You make the jump from account executive to VP. I like using a sports comparison here when people make those kind of leaps in their careers. Was there a bit of a shock becoming the coach rather than the player or no longer being the player? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So what's funny about what I see now is that a lot of times when we find someone that's really good at a role, we promote them very quickly into another role. This happens a lot in sales. You have a great sales rep and you're like, this sales rep's incredible. You know, she's getting all of her deals. She's closing. Let's make her the manager. And then we move them into a manager role and we didn't train them on being a manager. And being a manager is nothing like being a sales rep. You just happen to manage sales reps, but it's an entirely different skill set. And I've learned that. And I think what was fortunate for me was that that evolution from player to coach or from account executive to vice president and, and manager in between happened 
relatively slowly and step by step. So when I was a sales rep, I was in Alberta. I was the only sales rep in Alberta. So as we grew, I was able to hire a coordinator, which made me like a player coach, right? I also I still had a territory, but I managed somebody. Then I could hire another sales rep and I took a territory and they took a territory. So again, I was a player coach. I'm like, what is it, Reggie Lemlin from uh from what's that movie now? The like Canadian movie with the guys. You're gonna have to I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, what comes to <laughs> mind what comes to mind when you say that is, I mean, calling up the CFL again, Mike Pinball Clements of the Argonauts. When he was retiring, he kind of retired slowly into the head coach role of the team. And he was doing it for the tail end of his last season before taking over, I think, entirely the, the following season as just the coach. Yeah. So I had this nice transition. I would. So, you know, the frog in boiling water thing where if you put a frog in cold water and you boil it, the frog will boil because it doesn't notice the changes. And you put a frog in, in already boiling water, it'll jump out because of the shock, which is this crazy. I can't believe we've been using this analogy all the time of a frog boiling. I said it to my kid the other day and they're like, what are you talking about? Are you talk- <laughs> like, you're talking about boiling frogs. Is that how you're explaining this to me? We have all these weird sayings from when we were kids that we were brought up with. Uh, so I had this frog in cold water and then slowly boiled. And all of a sudden I basically woke up one day and I was the VP. And so I think I didn't have the shock of moving right from a sales rep into a manager role. I was able to make small mistakes along the way rather than being put in this position and then making big mistakes because I didn't know what I was doing. So that transition happened over time. And then even into being a business owner, I was responsible for a PL at Newad towards the end of my career there or my time there, which taught me a lot about like accounting and, and running a profit and loss and uh, running a business as well. I just got to make lots of mistakes under someone else's dime for quite a while before I did it on my own. During this time, you enrolled in and completed, and I, I know this is a bit of a mouthful, the Hyper Island Masterclass. And on your LinkedIn profile, you describe it as intensive learning experience that will change your thinking and perception on the influence of possibilities within digital media. Is this where the idea for Pressboard came about? Yeah, that's probably Hyper Island's explanation of what Hyper Island is. My explanation of Hyper Island (laughs) is South by Southwest, which is like a tech conference mixed in with Landmark. So Landmark is like a self-help course. It's a mix between those two things. And I'll give you an example. We spent, so it's this three-day or four-day intensive. You have a group of maybe 12 people. They're all in one room. You eat there. You leave at like midnight you're tired and you're kind of drained. But in the morning, you do meditation and then you work on building an app and then you talk about your feelings. Like it's this really weird. <laughs> wow, place. that's quite the it's, mix. I'd never seen anything like it. And I didn't, I thought I was going to like a tech thing. I thought I was learning about technology and apps. And then you get in there and they start off with meditation, which I was not familiar with at the time. And I was like, where am I? But what's cool is again, it leads back to this. It was like my dad was running a conference that my mom got to do the content for, right? So <laughs> that's that's true. Was, Yoga and meditation. They go I hand do. In hand. I love this crossover of these two things. Uh, so the idea for for Pressboard came from more from when I was at Newad. Newad owned a bunch of digital properties. I ran a campaign for Best Buy, and it was a content campaign. They had to do four stories with on our publications like Dose.ca, and we owned some other ones at the time. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's price this out. We priced it out. I thought it would take maybe 30 hours for us to run the campaign for Best Buy. It was a bunch of articles. Best Buy needed me to report every day on it. So I had run this campaign and it took 250 hours to execute. And I had only budgeted for 30 hours of internal resources. So I didn't look good. We lost our shirt on it. Best Buy liked the campaign, but I was like, this is, this is insane. We can't be running advertising campaigns that I have to hire additional staff for and that we lose money for. And right around then I was going to Hyper Island I went to Hyper Island and they were talking a lot about like disruption of of existing status quo. So if something the best ideas come from major problems and I was running into this major problem at Newad and I thought, well, what if I could solve like I'm in this problem? What if I could help solve this problem? And I uh, met my co-founder right around then. I had invested in his company, which uh, was called Gage Mobile, eventually sold to Juice Mobile in Toronto. Uh, and I knew TM really well, and TM's like this tech genius, just a genius in general, but specifically on software development. And I started talking to him about this problem, and then Hyper Island hit. And then the next, after I came out of that, I was just like, let's, I should just do this. I'd also 
you know, because it was this meditation, self-help thing, you leave there really charged up about like creating new possibilities. So I think everything just happened at once. And I had the problem. I thought I knew how to fix it. I had this inspiration from this event. I had the right co-founder that I could work with because he had just sold his company. And that all happened at the same time. It felt like a perfect storm in a way. Take us back to the very first moment that you decide, I'm going to go out on my own, but I've got to talk to my family about it. It wasn't something I had to talk to. So my wife, Christina, we, had, we just had uh, one child at the time. She knew I was always going to start something. Uh, she's known that since she met me. I mean, my dad's an entrepreneur. I always said that I'd love to start a company. I worked at New Ad, which was a very entrepreneurial company. So that was like, a, you know, baby steps into it. So we talked about it a lot. And I was at New Ad for, I think, eight years. And throughout that time, I just really loved that I got to work so closely with the owners, with Michael and Brian and JP and Philip and all these people that were that were so close to the business. And so she could see that I was ready for it. Uh, the thing about the timing was it sounds like perfect timing for me personally, but for our life, it might not have been. We had just had our second kid then. So Christina was about to have our second kid. We had just put down a mortgage on a house in North Vancouver and Vancouver's like housing prices is well known. It's especially very, North very Vancouver, high. super high, right? Yeah. So we had this huge mortgage. We had a second kid. Christina was about to go on mat leave. So we were going to have no income from, we were going to lose almost half of our income. And then I decided, well, why, why don't I get rid of my income too? Let's go no income, two kids, huge mortgage all at once. And that was the decision. So if you look at like the, the stage of our life, it probably seems like the worst time to start a business. But for me personally, it felt like the right time. So Christina, I mean, she definitely had to be on board with that idea because this is a big financial decision for us to make. We assumed we wouldn't make any money as a family for 12 months, which meant that we were going to burn through all of our savings. So something had to happen out the other side of it. So it, you know, looking back, it seems high risk, but at the time it didn't. I think humans have a max stress level that we hit really soon. And for me, having a second kid put me at a hundred percent of my ability to feel stress. So you could just layer on whatever you want after that. I can't even feel it. I'm already at hundred percent stress. You may as well give me everything at that point. That's what it felt like at the time. Give me a mortgage, like let's get rid of our income. Let's start a business all at the same time. Uh, so that kind of all happened around then, but Christina has been incredibly supportive because we both see this as this is just our family and we're just looking on how we're going to build our family's, you know, independence, both financially, emotionally, how we're going to raise our kids, how we're going to give them opportunities. So this was not a personal decision. It was more of a family decision anyway. And Christina is also in media as well. I mean, she's a sales rep, so she understands immediately the problems that you're trying to solve with Pressboard for the industry. Well, actually, we met at New Ad. So she she was never really in sales. She was the manager of the experiential department at New Ad. We ran this experiential department. We met through there. We worked together for a couple of years. We were dating other people. We always had a ton of respect. She's an incredibly hard worker, super creative and like organized to the T. She she's the yin to my yang in a lot of ways because I I have trouble multitasking. I'm really good when I'm focused, but I have trouble multitasking like a lot of people do. So we work together so well. I would I would sell the campaign through and then she would make sure whatever I sold through actually went. And if I think if I had to execute those campaigns, it would have been a disaster. And I think she did like that I was able to go out and maybe sell that campaign. So we worked closely together for two years before we even started dating. And then we started dating at New Ad. We ended up getting married while we were at New Ad. We had our first kid while we were at New Ad. And then she left and she worked at, at TELUS and for other experiential uh, places as well during that time. And I stayed at New Ad until I started press board. So it was this really interesting thing about us having this mutual respect for each other as people and coworkers and friends, and then moving into a relationship and having kids while working together. Really interesting dynamic. But the New Ad was owned by a husband-wife as well. So it again, you're when you're exposed to these things, they don't seem weird to you. Like my dad was a business owner. So I thought that's not weird. Isn't everyone's dad a business owner? My mom does yoga. Doesn't everybody do yoga? And I worked at New Ad. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, husband wife teams. This must be how companies and things work. So it was natural for me and Christina to think that was okay to do. What was the biggest challenge you had getting press board off the ground? The biggest challenge is 
that you don't realize how few things you touch when you're in a company. When you're in a bigger company, you don't have to worry about payroll or recruitment processes or your lease or insurance or, you know, what to do in a downturn of the economy. You just do your job and you're paid a salary to do that. And yeah, there might be some external factors that you have to pay attention to, but not really. You do your job, you do your job well, you're promoted for it and you're paid well for it. Uh, when I left, all of a sudden, you just realize that, hey, we don't have any insurance. Like, I don't even know where you, where do you even buy insurance? Where do you buy company insurance? How does a shareholder, like how does a cap table, I'd never seen seen a cap table in my life. You all of a sudden have all these things that you're now responsible for that you realize you don't know anything about. And so one of the within the first year, I just realized how important the finance department was at the at a company at New Ad specifically and the HR department, because often those departments are overlooked. They don't get the, you know, sales gets a lot of the, hey, we landed some deals, revenues going well, let's throw a party and the salespeople are the stars. You might have something where you're building product, tech product, and the product team, they built this amazing feature. It's been released. People love it, the product team. Uh, finance and HR, if things are going well, you don't notice them. It's only when things are going poorly in those departments that you start noticing them. So That's if I have true. any advice, if you're at a company right now, like just quickly stop by the accountants and the HR people and just a quick thank you because they just don't get the recognition. I'm, and I was part of the problem. I mean, I didn't recognize as well how important they were and it was the biggest challenge about starting the company is realizing how important those aspects of the company are and i had never really understood that let's go back to day one of press board being open for business what did the company look like then yeah so it was me and tm uh i was working from my new house with my huge mortgage in north vancouver and he was working from his condo and that was it it was the two of us we had a domain name and we had email addresses and we had this pitch deck we had this PowerPoint deck of what we eventually wanted to build. And it basically explained that if you're a content creator, specifically a publisher at this time, and you're working with an advertiser, you work through Pressboard and we will automate everything for you so that in one click, you'll have a report for your client that's beautiful, same day. Uh, so what we did was made the promise of the problem I had when I was working at Newad that we had solved that. So day one, we said, we've solved it. Here's what it looks like. Here's your beautiful reports. But that's all we had. We had no tech. Uh, we had, there was no actual product. There was just a PowerPoint deck that explained that this is what we were. And then behind the scenes, we landed a couple clients really early on with this promise. I was still doing what took 250 hours at Newad. I just was charging as if it only took 30 hours because that was the promise we were making. And that's how we got started. We, we actually landed quite a few deals really early because you can imagine when you say, hey, this used to take you 250 hours, we'll do it in 30 hours and we'll only charge you accordingly. People are like, of course I'll do that. Meanwhile, it was still taking us 250 hours to do it. So I just worked a lot. Since then, the press board has expanded to both Toronto and New York City. Given that these cities are three time zones ahead of Vancouver and New York City is obviously in the United States, would you say that this was one of the bigger challenges that you had growing the business? I would say it was challenging only that the way that you work changes because we had by then had an office in Vancouver. We went there every day. We could talk to each other. The reason we opened an office in Toronto and New York was simply to be closer to the customer. Most of the major media companies and advertising companies are based in Toronto, Chicago, New York. But New York is the epicenter of the world for advertising and media. So we needed somebody there because I was flying quite often, but even doing calls, trying to trying to be on the same time zone as three hours difference was nearly impossible to be available. So the challenge there was not, this, Toronto wasn't hard because Toronto is Canadian, our company worked the same way. When we went into the US, we had to open up a, a US entity. We had to all of a sudden uh, do all the things that we started the business. We had to redo all of those things just to get one sales rep in New York. And so that was, it was challenging, but at least we had known what it was like before. Uh, but the bigger change was changing the way that our company worked so that people didn't have to be in the office to be able to work together. So we had to do that right out of the gates because we had these people in Toronto and in New York that had to work with our product team, which was based in Vancouver. We're going through a pandemic now. And if you're lucky enough to still have a job, there's a 
good chance you're probably working from home. But recently you announced that Pressboard is going to be 100% virtual. Everyone's going to be working from home. What sold you on that shift? We were already what I would consider hybrid remote. Uh, Our Toronto and New York offices, we had moved from having an office space to people working remotely because it allowed us to scale up faster. Uh, New York office space is incredibly expensive. We just realized that a lot of people were driving into Manhattan and they didn't necessarily want to. Uh, So we were already hybrid where people could work two days from home, three days from the office if they'd like. So structurally, we were set up that way. Then COVID hit. So we decided on a Thursday at the end of the day in early March when everyone else basically did too, we said, okay, we're just not going to come back into the office. But in 15 minutes, because we were already built around this remote hybrid idea, everyone just grabbed their laptops, went home, worked from home, nothing changed. Uh, And then we realized, well, what do we, what is our office for? Because we had worked remotely now for three months. Our lease was coming due and our lease was going to be increasing in Vancouver by like 80% because at the pre-COVID. Sorry, did you say 80%? Yeah. So we we have three-year lease. We had a three-year lease. Pre-COVID, the vacancy rate in Gastown, in downtown Vancouver, was 0.9 of a percent, meaning like no vacancy. So landlords can put the rate up as much as they want. Commercial real estate, you don't have any fixed increases. You can increase it as much as you'd like. So they, we had an 80% increase. And we were about, I was about to sign it the week before COVID hit because we needed an office space for the next three years. So I was about to sign. And I said, oh, you know what? Let's wait a week. This seems weird going on. And if you remember back to late February, no one thought this was going to happen. It was no, still not at all. concerts going on. People are traveling. Everyone's like, oh. Hope, uh, hope this doesn't like disrupt my plans. And then all of a sudden, everyone's working from home. We're in lockdown, and we've been there since. So uh, I said, why don't we wait a week? And then I just waited, and then we looked at it, and we said, what are we doing? Why would we, why would we spend 80% more per month on an office that no one's really that interested in going to every day? No one wanted to. We were being more productive. Uh, people still want to get together, but they didn't necessarily want to have to go from nine to five and sit in a desk, just get on the same laptop that they were on at home. Uh, So we just decided, well, let's just go, let's go remote. No time like now. So we didn't sign our lease and we moved entirely remote. And now what's interesting is we're, so we don't know what we're doing, right? We've never done this before. Most companies haven't done this before. I'm not going to pretend I'm a remote first expert uh, like Basecamp like or some of these companies that have before. But what I do find interesting is we can try some stuff out. We can uh, get together at an Airbnb, like a really cool rooftop Airbnb in the summer for two days in Vancouver and run our office from there for two days. Uh, Individually, someone that lives in like the suburbs can rent a single person office space a couple days if they just need to get out of their house because maybe they have like a significant other that works from home and they just need some space. We just have this really flexible thing and we've taken all of that money that we saved and we're actually hiring with it. So I just hired someone in Athens, Greece, because we wanted to expand into Europe. Normally, I'd have to think about, okay, the same way we opened in New York, like, okay, what do we got to do? Open up a business there, all that stuff. But now that we can hire someone anywhere, in one week, we found somebody, we hired them, and she's going to be like actively working by next week based there. It just opened up the candidate pool to anybody in any market at any time, which is super interesting. So there's going to be some positives, but I imagine we're going to run into some challenges that we're going to have to figure out too, because people do like to interact with each other in person. So once everything opens up and people are allowed to do this at a bigger scale, we'll have to find ways to be able to to still facilitate that for everyone. So press board right now is uh, three continents, sorry, two continents, three countries. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. What was the biggest difference between day one of press board versus today? Definitely product. So our vision has always been the same. We had a problem. We're still trying to solve the problem for content creators. Maybe we've moved a little bit beyond just publishers over to influencers. But to me, the New York Times and and an influencer are no different. They're creating content. They're getting it out to an audience and they're making their money through advertising of some sort. So that's not really that different. Uh, What's changed is I had a PowerPoint deck when I was starting and I was pitching an idea and then clients were signing on to that idea and then we didn't have a product that facilitated that idea. And if you fast forward to now, I mean, we have, we've won Digiday's Best Content Marketing Award, uh, Tech Award. We have NBC and New York Times and Globe. Like we have all these massive companies that rely on our system every day. 
And it's not about me in a PowerPoint anymore. It's not about me pitching an idea, convincing someone that this is a possible future and them having to rely completely on me. Uh, our team can sell it without me being involved, right? The product is able to sell itself. The users use it and then they refer other people. So just, I think it took us a long time to build what our vision was, what that PowerPoint deck said that we were going to do, uh, but we're there now. And that's the fundamental difference in the business is that we have a product that actually works and it's not a PowerPoint deck with a promise that I'm making. A couple of rapid fire questions for you. First one, the campaign you're most proud of. So Best Buy gift guide 2017. And only because it's the exact same campaign that I tried to do at New Ad that took me 250 hours. And in 2017, it took me 30 hours using our software. It was just <laughs> a clear, it was like we had solved the problem. <laughs> and that's it. it <laughs> Bringing it full three circle. Years to do it. And it was the exact same campaign. So that's my proudest one. Your favorite movie? Uh, Goodwill Hunting, because I I love a movie about like these under undiscovered brilliance. I think I found a few as employees over the years, and I love that idea. So I watch Goodwill Hunting all the time. I like your answer to this next question because I had the exact same video game on the exact same system. Your favorite video game? Yeah. So I think it's is it ninety eight uh, NHL EA Sports uh, because it's the best hockey video game ever and it happened when i was 18 which was the peak of my video playing career uh it's an amazing i still i'm like that old man now that looks at the new hockey video games i'm like oh it's not 98 though <laughs> no i'm a retro gamer too i do I, I do miss those games of the 90s especially nhl 98 my brother and i used to play it on shootout mode we wouldn't even play full games yeah if Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Oh, you know what? So normally I say Justin Timberlake because who wouldn't want Justin Timberlake to play them, right? He, he's, he's the triple threat. But I'm going to change that answer. And now I'm going to say Angela Bauer, Judith Light, only to make it full circle where I have become her in some way. Your favorite book? So I... I uh, read every Michael Crichton book when I was a kid. I loved Michael Crichton books. And there's this one book called Airframe, which is still my favorite of Michael Crichton's books. And it's the only book that I reread out of all the books. I'm not a, a rereader. I'm not that kind of person that rereads the same books all the time. But that's one that I'll recommend to anybody. And it just happened at a really interesting time in my life where I, where I fell in love with, with books and reading. And Michael Crichton was my, my author of choice. Your favorite song? Black Eyed Peas, Tonight's Gonna Be a Good Night. And that's because it, was, it wasn't our wedding song. It was the song that leads into the party. So right when all the speeches are done and you play that one song and it gets everyone on the dance floor and that's what yep. me and Christina wanted. We wanted everybody, old and young, to get on the dance floor. And the Black Eyed Peas have a way of making that happen. So I still hear that song and I feel like running out onto a dance floor. The best advice you have ever received? Uh, my... Dad, I don't even know if he meant to give this advice, but it's still advice that I use today. I used to water ski a lot, so did my sisters. And as I got better, I wouldn't fall as often because I was getting better at water skiing. And I would fall and I'd be upset that I was failing at it. And my dad would say, if you're not falling, you're not learning. And that just hit me that I was like, oh. And then what I realized was that once you're doing something and you're not failing anymore, it's because you're just not trying. You're not learning anything new. You're not trying anything new. And my dad, I don't know if he meant it in this way that was going to like frame my entire life of you. Uh, it was more around water skiing, but that's always really stuck with me. This idea that if you're, if you're not falling, you're not learning anymore. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? My experience going backpacking, I almost didn't go. If I wouldn't have got that big commission check, I probably wouldn't have gone and I'd regret it to this day. So I think making Big choices when you're in your early 20s is the best time to do them. One thing I wish I would have done, and I, I don't really see any regrets in my life, but one thing I would recommend to other people is when you're in your early 20s, go to whatever the biggest, most exciting market for your field is. For me, it would have been New York. Go to Manhattan, work as a in advertising when you're in your early 20s and you can live with six other people and you can eat terrible food and you have no responsibilities. Uh, that's what I would say is whatever your industry is, get into the epicenter of it 
for at least a period of time and do it while you don't have responsibility and you don't need that much money. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I do love advertising and marketing, but I would do the polar opposite of it if I wasn't doing this. I would, I've had this dream of having a small farm off the grid, raising my own animals and vegetables. That's probably what I would do if I wasn't in this pure capitalism, advertising and marketing. And my, my wife jokes about it because if we're ultimately successful and, you know, become financially independent or sell press board, what I would immediately do is go and use none of that money and go and live off of the live, live right <laughs> off of the land completely separate from from the rest of the cap. Maybe this is the introvert in me. Jared, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks for having me, Victor. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.